my name's Nick Rawlins, and I'm the Pro Vice-Chancellor for Development and External Affairs. And you may wonder what I'm doing starting off this inaugural lecture. And the answer is, I am actually going to introduce Dr. Berger, in after whom, of course, it is named. And you will then have an elegant cascade of introductions. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Berger himself. He's a very greatly valued friend of Oxford who uh, has done an awful lot of different things for us. And I'll just highlight one other than this, which is that in September of 2012, he was among the eminent leaders that were appointed as commissioners for the Oxford Martin Commission for Future Generations, which he and I have just been talking about. It was set up to address today's most critical challenges by promoting the development of shared values and providing practical recommendations. That's what you come to Oxford for, remember. None of your abstract, abstract academic stuff. Practical, practical recommendations in which we specialise for action on the critical challenges facing our global society. He's also the founder and I think now the honorary chairman of Roland Berger Strategy Consultants, whose excellent judgment I would like to endorse uh, in virtue of the fact they employed one of my best graduate students to work for them, showing a company of excellent taste. <laughs> so we have, you know, we give something back. We, we take, but we also return. But what we're really celebrating tonight is his generous contribution, not just to the university, but I want to say to the wider world, through his sponsorship under the umbrellaship of the Weidenfeld Scholarships Programme, of no fewer than 17 Roland Berger scholars to date. And they are people whose studies and their future careers will carry an important output from Oxford to, actually, to a number of countries. And in passing, I just want to say of the Weidenfeld programme itself, what a programme to be part of. So the Weidenfeld there have been so far 138 Weidenfeld scholars, I think. And all the mathematicians amongst you will have thought, gosh, that means the Roland Berger is almost exactly one-eighth of that number. I know you've got there already, so I, I'm just following you. Um, and they are from 48 countries, which is pretty remarkable. And the Roland Berger scholars themselves, so far, have come from Central and Eastern Europe, the Balkans, the Caucasus, Russia... Central Asia, North Africa, and the Middle East. And because they're embedded in the wider Weidenfeld scheme, then that gives them an obvious added impetus. They've got not just what they've done themselves, not just their own selection, but they're part of a bigger program that carries some very, very important ideas and activities out from Oxford. It's really in my view, a major component of Oxford's global outreach. And we're very grateful to that programme and to this component of that programme. So this year's Berger Scholars include a number of social scientists, among them a young Egyptian with a background working with Cairo street children. I think you'll find... There we are. There are hands. It's good. I don't know who everybody is. I know who some people are. But you will find these people amongst you. Uh, a medical anthropologist... Uh, whose research is directed towards finding and implementing more effective non-medical treatments for a range of psychiatric conditions, incidentally an area in which Oxford has extraordinary strength in, in the deployment of 
uh, non-medical, i.e. non-drug-based interventions for psychological disorders. It's a huge strength here. There are several lawyers, amongst them a Hungarian scholar whose focus is on the protection of free speech. Good. Uh, that's me. And minorities, which I'm not. Um, and a particular interest, I think, in, in improving the situation of the Roma people, a very hot topic in Europe, as we know. Uh, let me see if I can try and pronounce it right. Nadia Shkalish. Is that close? That's very close, who is there, who is from Bosnia and worked at the International Criminal Court at The Hague in the earlier stages of the prosecution of the former Bosnian Serb leader Radovan Karadzic and is pursuing her MJUR, while at the same time continuing to work towards further, furthering reconciliation in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Uh, you know, why do only one thing at once when you could do two or three? And a Lithuanian scholar who's, yep, right, whose research into aspects of EU law aims to strengthen and improve citizens' right to healthcare, work, and education. So an extraordinary collection of people. Despite the relative youth of the Roland Berger scholarships, it's striking to see that a number of them, scholarships, not scholars, it's striking to see that a number of them are already making an impact in publications in a variety of fields, research on the applicability of international humanitarian law to armed conflict, Again, interesting connections with other activities in Oxford. Working on improved border policing in Israel. Conducting interviews with HIV-positive teenagers in South Africa, to mention but a few. So, as these examples make evident, this is a wonderful and imaginative scheme whose breadth of vision and, I think you could say, and philanthropic derivation are admirably reflected in the range of fields which its recipients, both past and present, are working in. We are enormously grateful for the generosity of spirit which animates this gift. And clearly, given the nature of the scholarship and of the people it supports, so too will be many people well beyond these walls or even these city walls in the future. So I'd like to introduce Dr. Berger himself, who will uh, take things forward from here. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Professor Rawlins. It's a great honor to be introduced by you to this excellent audience. And it's a great honor for me, of course, to greet you all for this first, what is called a Ron Berger lecture. I'm a little bit worried about it. Anyhow, before Sir Adam Roberts will introduce Justice Arber, our speaker of tonight, allow me to say a few words about what the Weidenfeld Rollenberger Scholarship Leadership Program does and why I endorsed it. I'm particularly happy that the current scholars are with us this evening. And I hope that many of you will get the opportunity to talk to them after this lecture. But first, why human dignity? Why human rights? I was born in Berlin in 1937, and therefore I experienced the horrors of the Nazi regime at first hand. My father, my father was an entrepreneur, and he was openly critical about the Hitler regime, and he was under constant surveillance by the Gestapo, and in fact, 
I, as a child, remember Gestapo visits nearly once a month during the night. And I saw how much my parents were afraid about this pressure. My father was put in jail first in 1942, and then in 1944 he was put in concentration camp in Dachau. At the same time, in the bad circumstances, he was lucky to a certain extent because he was helped by friends who brought him to the Eastern Front in the German army, which of course has then made him another bad experience, which was uh, the uh, prisoner of war, that was being prisoner of war uh, of the Soviet army in the eastern part of Europe in different countries. He came back only in 1947. And he never fully recovered from the traumas caused to him by the Nazi regime and by this experiences. This experience as a child, I must say, made me decide later on that I wanted to make whatever contribution I could to promote the respect for freedom, for democracy, and the rule of law. And of course, first of all, for human rights, as summed up in the German constitution under the term human dignity. One way of doing this, of course, is also to recognize leaders who have promoted human rights. And this is what the Human Dignity Award of my foundation does. This award is given annually to individuals, institutions, or communities that play an exemplary and successful role in promoting human dignity and human rights. Its recipients include Shirin Abadi, Ebadi, Helmut Kohl, Asma Yahangir, who is a Pakistani, Pakistani human rights lawyer, Jaggery, an Indian women rights organization, and the Afghan Women's Network, also defending women's rights in Afghanistan. We also provide not only the award, and not only the prize money, but also we provide ongoing support for the prize winners to help them to carry out their projects. I find it of particular importance that such a prize is given out of Germany by Germans with our historic, particular historic responsibility. That is also the reason why the award is presented every year by a senior politician in recent years, either by the president of the Federal Republic of Germany or the president of the German Bundestag, our parliament. Another way of promoting human dignity is to educate and to support tomorrow's leaders. And that's why we engage ourselves within the Weidenfeld Scholarship Initiative 
for the particular Roland Berger Scholarship for future leaders in transition or emerging countries and economies of Europe's wider neighborhood. And Professor Rowling was kind enough to greet you all here, so I don't do it anymore. Anyhow, I'm sure that in your future leadership roles you will take on in your countries, be it in on governments, be it in civil service, be it in business. The issue of human dignity will play a major role. And this is why I am so proud to sponsor this lecture here in the Oxford, uh, in, in the great Oxford University. Which takes us to tonight's lecture, because we have a leading champion of human rights with us tonight. I'm delighted to you, dear Justice Arbor, that you have accepted our invitation and will give the first Roland Berger lecture. Thank you so much for joining us. And I now will invite Sir Adam to say a few words about your very distinguished career. Thank you very much. Well, first I must thank Roland Berger for giving us not only a wonderful introduction to this event, um, but also um, for giving us such a great occasion to celebrate. Uh, and I know from all the work I've done both at Oxford and at the British Academy that uh, financing graduate studies is the hardest thing to organise and the best thing to do. And you've made a major contribution uh, by doing this, as indeed has Lord Weidenfeld, who is uh, uh, with us this evening. Uh, so this is a, a wonderful occasion for celebration, but it's also a, a great occasion to welcome a very distinguished uh, individual. Um, by any standard, Louise's life's work has been one of extraordinary distinction. She's been a university teacher at York University in Ontario, vice president of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, a member of the Supreme Court of Ontario, later its Court of Appeal, a member of the Supreme Court of Canada, Chief Prosecutor of the International Criminal Tribunals for the former Yugoslavia and for Rwanda, and that's a position in which she won particular admiration. It's a very difficult role. She did it with perhaps less publicity, less travelling than some other international prosecutors, but uh, with evidence throughout of a towering intellect and a firm commitment to independence. Uh, and these were recognised by her colleagues who were very sorry uh, when she left uh, the court. She was then the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights and she's been awarded honorary doctorates by an extraordinary number of universities. At the last count it was well over 30. Um, now anybody else 
at that point might have uh, been more interested in displaying their own grandeur than in engaging with others. And emphatically, this is not the case with Louise Arbour. I met her at a few conferences, and she didn't do the, uh, what the, um, the great but not terribly good do, which was just appear at a conference, deliver a speech, and then disappear. She engaged with the conference, read the papers, talked to others at the conference. And um, now, of course, she's in the job since 2009 of being president and CEO of International Crisis Group. Now, this is an extraordinarily demanding job. It's almost like being foreign minister of every country of the world and Delphic Oracle all at the same time. And um, sometimes I think of it as being far from resting on your laurels, it's a bed of nails. But if it is a bed of nails, it's one which may be uncomfortable to lie on, but it's certainly there to make other people and other governments uh, feel uncomfortable as it does with its reports, which are very uh, um, hard-hitting in the calls for reform as a way of addressing conflict and crisis in a wide uh, range of countries. So we could well wish that there were more people like her uh, with that combination of extraordinary skill uh, and commitment. She's going to address us on a critical issue of our time, one which has been the subject of much discussion uh, in Oxford and elsewhere. Are freedom, peace and justice incompatible agendas? She will take questions, at least I hope she will, after the lecture, that's right, yes, um, and then um, Tamas Shigeti, is he here? Yes, uh, he will uh, uh, speak at the end and, and uh, close the proceedings for us. So please give Louise uh, Arbour the warm welcome that she so fully deserves. Thank you, thank you very much indeed. I knew that the moment I step here, I would have, as I am having, a near-death experience when I look at people sitting usually near the front row that represent all kinds of chapters of my life, it's like my professional life is unfolding in front of me. There's Chris Patton, who was the, the chair of the Board of Crisis Group when I joined as a president and CEO in 2009. There's Jeffrey Nice, who uh, prosecuted Milosevic, uh, and uh, who, with whom I overlapped, not entirely, but for uh, a period of time at ICTY, and then Jonathan Prentice, whom I found hiding in a corner at the office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights and managed to extricate himself eventually from the United Nations to come and join me at Crisis Group, where he's currently uh, in charge of all the policy development. So, there's nobody, I hope, there's nobody in hiding from Canada who would represent my time on the bench because this would complete my near-death experience. I'm delighted to hear that there's, uh, there are some young scholars who have interest on the, some of the issues that I'll be touching on on my uh, lecture. I had hoped to be able to just deliver this without the text, but I'm now prisoner to, to this, and if I tried to, to, to skip and... and uh, 
and get away from my text, I'll forget some important parts. So if you'll bear with me, um, I hope that when we come to questions and answers, um, I could be more responsive to your concerns and maybe more animated. Um, let me say at the outset, this, I, I'm starting with a very broad topic, which I hope to narrow down in a more pointed way. Uh, wars have been fought in the pursuit of freedom, and peace has often been disrupted by the pursuit of justice. The linkage between the respect for human rights and peace, justice, and prosperity is explicit in the Universal Declaration for Human Rights, which it says in their preamble, whereas recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. And then a little later, to me this is a critical part, whereas it is essential if man is not to be compelled to have recourse as a last resort to rebellion against tyranny and oppression, that human rights should be protected by the rule of law. When Kofi Annan was the Secretary General, he insisted on the significance of what he called the three pillars of the United Nations. He repeatedly said, we cannot have any security without development, we cannot have development without security, and we can have neither development nor security without human rights. But to what extent is this nexus that is so compelling rhetorically, to what extent is it true in reality? The uprisings that have rocked the Arab world since the beginning of 2011 were partly rooted in the lack of economic opportunity for millions. But they also speak volumes about the link between deprivation of human rights and the absence of the rule of law on the one hand and recourse to rebellion against tyranny and oppression on the other. What is less clear to me is the set of preventive or remedial measures that can be taken in the face of severe human rights violations, armed conflict, gross underdevelopment, uh, the actions that would ensure citizens don't feel the need to resort to rebellion against tyranny, as citizens in the Middle East and North Africa have done a tremendous risk to themselves as we see the events unfolding in Syria, for instance, and in Egypt, and in Yemen, and I think throughout, still throughout the region. So the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, I believe, remains largely aspirational. Its commitments are ultimately hostage to the competing principle of state sovereignty, which places on states almost exclusively the responsibility for the well-being of their citizens, and to the weak institutional structures designed to promote and protect human rights at regional and international levels. So what I would like to do is examine today with you how modern doctrines, in particular international criminal justice, the responsibility to protect, and the rule of law, have contributed to the advancement of lasting peace, and whether it's more likely that they could deliver more in the future. So let me first turn to what was my first venture in international affairs, international criminal justice. As you know, the first effort at using personal criminal responsibility for war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide after the Nuremberg and Tokyo trials was the establishment of the tribunals for such crimes perpetrated in the former Yugoslavia and in, in Rwanda. And that was an initiative of the Security Council of the United Nations. So that made it, at least in theory, an exercise in the pursuit of peace. 
The Security Council's jurisdiction comes from its exclusive power as the world's guardian of international peace and security. So the tribunal, the justice, was anchored in a political institution. That the initiative came from a quintessentially political body may explain why, right at the outset, this imaginative justice initiative was seen by some as the political tool, as, as the service of, if not subservient, to the objective of securing peace. It was, of course, depicted by those it targeted as a means to pursue political interests a lot less noble than peace, and they routinely denounced the tribunal as selective and biased. But even for its proponents, the basic assumption was that in emphasizing personal guilt rather than collective responsibility, it would serve to prevent large-scale vengeance and retaliation and would contribute to national reconciliation. That it would serve as deterrence, as criminal prosecutions are always claimed to do, was also assumed. Twenty years later, I think it's important that we ask ourselves, what evidence is there to support these assumptions? The Rome Statute that created the International Criminal Court repeated this link between justice and peace. The court was set up, in fact, to redress the lack of universality that tainted the ad hoc tribunals for the former Yugoslavia and for Rwanda and subsequent similar initiatives in Sierra Leone and in Cambodia, for instance. So the, the objective of creating a court by treaty was to eventually enlist the voluntary adherence of all UN member states and thus counter the claims of selectivity and coercion. Like its predecessors, the ICC, the International Court, was anchored in the ideal of advancing peace. Indeed, the preamble of the Rome Statute states that such grave crimes threaten the peace, security, and well-being of the world. So while the statute champions accountability, much of it, its language assumes that justice is or should be an instrument of peace. It asserts that peace and justice are equally desirable objectives with the added assumption that they're mutually reinforcing. But the past two decades have shown that this is often not the case. Of course, peace is unlikely to be sustainable over time without any justice. But in the short term, in some instances, the initiation and the unfolding of criminal prosecutions can complicate, if not actually impede, peace processes. The skepticism over the contribution that criminal justice can make to peace was expressed very forcefully in a recent opinion piece by former South African President Thabo Mbeki and Professor Mahmoud Mamdini in the International New York Times. I still can't bring myself to calling it that, but the International New York Times on February 6th of this year. The title of their op-ed says it all. It's called Courts Can't End Civil Wars. Now, one would be tempted to retort that they were never meant to do that. But that would be to suggest that the whole thesis could be dismissed easily, and I don't think it can. This is not the familiar rant against accountability institutions by those who have many good reasons to want to uh, avoid accountability. Rather, it poses the question that many champions of international criminal justice refuse to tackle head-on. Are criminal trials an adequate response to politically driven mass violence? The authors then assert that, and I quote, mass violence 
is a political, sorry, mass violence is more a political than a criminal matter. Unlike criminal violence, they say, political violence has a constituency and is driven by issues, not just by perpetrators." End of quote. Arguing for a model which recognizes that all survivors, victims and perpetrators alike, will have to live together in peace, Mbeki and his co-authors state, and I quote again, there is a time and a place for courts, as in Germany after Nazism, but it is not in the midst of conflict or a non-functioning political system. Courts, they say, are ill-suited to inaugurating a new political order after civil wars. They can only come into the picture after such a new order is already in place." End of quote. Now, this is not new. It calls for the familiar sequencing of peace and justice initiatives, whereby justice is not abandoned altogether, but rather substantially delayed, as has been the case, as you know, in many countries of Latin America, for example. I find more troubling the following observation by Mbeki and Mamdani. Quote, in civil wars, they say, no one is wholly innocent and no one wholly guilty. Victims and perpetrators often trade places and each side has a narrative of violence. End of quote. So instead of pursuing criminal trials, which will then define and to some extent fix the identities of victims and perpetrators, the authors call for, quote, a political process where all citizens, yesterday's victims, perpetrators, and bystanders may face one another as today's survivors, as they claim was done not only in South Africa, but also in Uganda and in Mozambique. I confess I find this model difficult to envisage in a post-conflict environment like that of Rwanda in the immediate aftermath of the genocide. And yet, maybe surprisingly, today Rwanda is very much in the lead in the pushback against the International Criminal Court. In the end, collapsing ends and means, political objectives and criminal methods, in my view, is not persuasive. It amounts to a total repudiation of the Geneva Conventions governing the conduct of war. And as much as many may claim that these conventions are now outdated, the core assumption that civilians are wholly innocent and therefore improperly targeted should not be, in my view, so easily abandoned. Still, this is a much more serious challenge to the future of international criminal justice indeed of even national war crimes prosecutions as well, than the current spat between the African Union and the ICC, which I'll touch on in a moment. In essence, Mbeki and his co-author are calling for a rejection of the entire enterprise, or at least its postponement, probably for decades. Of course, for all the examples given in that article, they are contrary arguments. The tribunal for the former Yugoslavia was created while the war was still raging in Bosnia. It was not designed to stop the conflict. Nothing else had succeeded at that point in doing so. But it was launched in the hope of reducing atrocities associated with the conflict and eventually distancing the perpetrators' communities from the collective responsibility that might otherwise be visited on them by those seeking revenge. And for what it's worth as a precedent, Milosevic surrendered in the Kosovo War just a few days after having been indicted a war criminal by the tribunal. 
So I believe we are at a crossroads. They are essentially two ways forward. One is to segregate as much as possible the juridical from the political, which I've long advocated, but which I now believe is not within the immediate horizon. The other way is to muddle along with the status quo, which will require yielding more to the political imperatives of peace, at least in the short term, than the justice advocates of the last few decades have wanted to concede. This doesn't make for very tidy advocacy, of course, and it's not a message that many in the human rights community like to hear. But to pretend otherwise, to keep pretending that there's no tension between peace and justice, and that, quote, we deserve both, without explaining how, is in my view unhelpful and giving the increasing challenges to both the institution and now to the concept itself, it could prove devastating. Better would be to recognize this increasing tension and for now design a framework for navigating the risks in each individual case that will accommodate as best possible the goals of both peace and justice. The Rome Statute, like many other of our instruments of international justice, offers very little clarity on how we should do that. Hardly surprising, actually, given its implicit assumption that the goals, justice and peace, are actually inherently mutually reinforcing. The current, the current peace talks that are taking place in Havana between the government of Colombia and the FARC offers a real opportunity for addressing these issues constructively. These talks present a serious chance for peace in a country that has been plagued by this conflict for now 60 years. Yet the peace talks today are constrained by legal, constrained by legal developments internationally, as Colombia is a party to the Rome Statute creating the ICC, and domestically as much the same requirements are now written into the Colombian legislation, actually into part of it in its constitution. Those actually preclude blanket amnesty, or to use President Mbeki's language, yesterday's victims, perpetrators, and bystanders all facing one another today as survivors. That is not an option in Colombia. There is a point of convergence, though, in Colombia between peace and justice, but it can only be reached if advocates of both sides, as well as Colombia's external supporters, agree to compromise and to maximize the attainment of both. Proponents of a peace deal at all costs must concede that it would not be viable, nor even probably upheld by the courts in Colombia and the Inter-American Court, unless it contained acceptable measures of accountability for atrocities perpetrated by actors of all sides in the conflict. And in turn, rather than keep insisting that all perpetrators be prosecuted, a totally unrealistic prospect in any event, and a demand that would most certainly result in either the FARC opting out of the talks or the military top brass blocking them, justice advocates must support an approach that would focus on those most responsible for the most serious crimes. And even there, considering that some of them might be able to hold the peace process hostage to their personal interest, there have to be incentives for them to come forward, and I, in my view, without compromising the core integrity of justice, these measures should include a very lenient treatment in exchange for disclosing facts, expressing remorse, and making some form of restitution. Reasonable as this may sound, it's not easy to put in place. Not all seem to share 
my very deeply held views that all good things, truth, justice, peace itself, can be pursued with too much zeal or obtained at too high a cost. But compromise should not be confused with an unjustified political interference in judicial processes, of which they are, in my opinion, several unfortunate examples. The most recent decision, the most recent example is the decision by the Assembly of State Parties to the Rome Statute to amend the rules of procedure and evidence of the ICC to allow the judges to excuse, and I quote, persons mandated to fulfill extraordinary public duties at the highest national level from the requirement of presence during their trial. This amendment came as a result of intense lobbying from several African heads of states in support of Kenyatta and Ruto elected respectively president and vice president of Kenya after having been indicted by the ICC for international crimes related to the post-2007 election violence. The indicted Kenyan officials argued that their joining political force and their joint uh, victory in the elections testified to a desire by the people of Kenya for reconciliation, implying that they faced a choice between that and retribution, standing trial, and that their continued presence at the helm of the government was required, particularly in lights of threats to domestic peace posed by the recent al-Shabaab's incursion into Kenya and the demands of the war across the border in Somalia. While this amendment served to diffuse, if not merely delay, the confrontation between the court and some states' parties to the statute, the special treatment that it provides to persons in authority reintroduces the very element of selectivity that the court was designed to reject. And worse still, in doing so, it provides for a preferential treatment for those who are invariably the primary targets of a court, which only has jurisdiction when national courts are unwilling or unable to act, and which must therefore focus on those most powerful and responsible for the most serious crimes. Now, the two Security Council re uh, resolution referring cases to the ICC, in the case of Darfur in 2005 and Libya in 2011, reflect, in my view, once again, political considerations which taint the justice process, much more so, I may add, in the latter case than in the former. For Libya's referral, the relevant uh, Security Council resolution, resolution 1973, exempts from the reach of the ICC nationals of states that are not party to the Rome Statute, except obviously Libyans. This explicitly self-serving exemption, made by a body of which three of its five permanent members, China, Russia, and the United States, are not party to the treaty, and one, the US, uh, was an active uh, participant in the Libyan conflict is, in my opinion, a flagrant repudiation of the rule of law premised as it is on equality before the law. This triumph of political weight could perhaps be overlooked if the justice dividends were overwhelming, but we're very far from that. With the ICC receiving no additional support, financial, political, or operational, even in cases that are brought into its jurisdiction by the might of the Security Council, I believe that in the end, the such politically tainted referrals do more harm than good. 
expected to expand the reach of accountability, they in fact undermine it. It's one thing to explain why the ICC is inactive in Syria. Syria is not a party to the Rome Treaty. But it's then very difficult to explain why the court is engaged in Darfur and Libya, since neither Libya nor Sudan are parties to the treaty. The answer lies in Security Council politics, not in any principled application of sound legal principles. Worse still, nominally empowered by the Security Council, the court is then left exposed to the obvious observation that it is impotent to deliver on its threat of accountability. So under the current institutional model of international criminal justice, this intermingling of judicial and political considerations is perhaps inevitable, but I believe in the long term it is unhelpful to both. Although some are now calling for accountability for atrocities perpetrated in Syria and in South Sudan, and I understand as of today for North Korea, for instance, but if we take the two examples of Syria and South Sudan, since neither is a signatory to the Rome Statute, the jurisdiction of the court could only be activated by the Security Council. The political paralysis in the Council may in fact be a relief to those seeking a political solution to these conflicts. In the case of Syria, because accountability would undoubtedly complicate the search for an already elusive political deal, and in the case of South Sudan, because it could prove a red flag to the bulls who were so recently on the attack against the ICC. In both cases, the arguments advanced by President Mbeki may prevail. Until the creation of the ICC, these arguments had in fact, for the most part, prevailed, if only by default. Very few countries had launched criminal prosecutions for mass atrocities committed on their territory at times of conflict, and fewer even without international assistance. Only time will tell whether true, sustainable, national reconciliation is more achievable when, quote, survivors, victims, perpetrators, and bystanders alike are left to move forward without any reckoning for the past than when criminal prosecutions are used to stamp political violence as criminal. A very different path was taken in Rwanda than in South Africa, for instance. I believe it's too early to tell whether either society is truly reconciled. And finally, I should add that peace is not the only interest that is currently putting international criminal justice under attack. In parallel to the emergence of the ICC, several states, more predominantly Spain and Belgium, have acted under the principle of universal jurisdiction for international crimes to assert their jurisdiction over foreign nationals for crimes committed outside their territory. Now, Belgium retreated considerably some years ago, and Spain is now also in the process of doing so, ostensibly under pressure from China, after a Spanish magistrate issued international arrest warrants against Chinese former President Yang Jimin and former Prime Minister Li Peng on matters related to Tibet. This followed, as you know, similar initiatives against other high-profile foreigners, most notably the charges that were brought against Augusto Pinochet, which have had legal ramifications in this country and eventually in Chile. It's not only the economic consequences of aggravating Chinese authorities that are persuading Spanish lawmakers to back off. Diplomatic and political complications more broadly are fueling the pushback. So the resistance to the entire accountability enterprise launched some 20 years ago, the resistance, in my view, is at an all-time high. 
Now let me turn to their responsibility to protect. R2P, as it's uh, often called, um, as you know, is a recent articulation of human rights and humanitarian imperatives in the face of mass atrocities. Embraced by the United Nations General Assembly in 2005, the doctrine was first articulated by the International Commission on Intervention in State Sovereignty, which itself had been launched as a response to the NATO-led intervention in Kosovo in 1999, which was conducted without Security Council approval. Now, this history is important to understand the utility of the doctrine and, to some extent, its current shortcomings. It asserts that states have a responsibility to protect people under their jurisdiction from genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and that if a state is unwilling or unable to discharge that duty, responsibility then shifts to the international community. Now, R2P envisages the use of force to prevent atrocities only as a last measure to be used when all others fail, and then only with Security Council backing. But in reality, the controversy around R2P has focused mostly on this question of the use of force. Very few object in principle to the idea of preventing mass atrocities through development, diplomacy, advocacy, mediation, capacity building, and the like. But many such initiatives cannot really be characterized as efforts in preventing atrocities. In fact, to do so would be counterproductive. Even the weakest and most vulnerable state will resist early assistance extended under the label prevention of genocide. It's readily apparent, too, that for all the rhetoric about early warning, the earlier the warning, the higher the wall of state sovereignty, and the quicker it will be erected. In turn, the weaker the state and the more imminent the danger to civilians, the easier, still not easy, but I say easier it is, to make international, uh, external intervention possible. So it's the sharp end of R2P, how and when to mobilize support for military action to prevent atrocities, that is the crucible of both the doctrine and of its limits, which the crisis in Syria and, and uh, in Libya and Syria have amply demonstrated. The doctrine was instrumentalized by NATO in Libya as an act of war to effect regime change. NATO used its Security Council mandate to protect civilians, to then oust President Gaddafi, leading to outcries that the humanitarian doctrine was used essentially for political ends. While it's difficult, difficult for me, to contemplate how Libyan civilians could have been protected from their murderous leaders, leader without his removal from office, the fact that his demise was not explicitly made part of the request uh, for Security Council mandate does give some plausibility to the claim of deception and has certainly aggravated the suspicion in many parts of the world that the West just cannot be trusted with such doctrines. What is clear is that R2P so far has been of very little help in coming to the rescue of the more than 100,000 civilians since killed in Syria. One problem here, less acute than in the case of international criminal justice, but real still in my view, is that R2P operates again in the gray zone between law and politics. The doctrine, to some extent, overlaps with the requirement to prevent genocide, a legal norm explicit in the widely ratified Genocide Convention 
and reflecting customary international law binding on all states. The reluctance of some to use the term genocide during the unfolding of the slaughter in Rwanda, the controversy about its use in Darfur, and now the occasional emergence of the term in Syria and in the Central African Republic may reflect an understanding not only that genocide is the ultimate crime, but that the obligation to prevent it is real, even possibly justiciable. Not so, at least not yet so, in the case of other mass atrocities contemplated by R2P, hence the dilution of responsibility to a mere political one, however morally compelling it is in the eyes of many. Not only that, it's a political responsibility which invariably is assigned only to the offending state. It's not a coincidence, I suggest, that in its resolutions on Libya, the Security Council only spoke of Libya's responsibility to protect its people. Although the 2005 General Assembly was clear that this responsibility fell to other states in extremists, this was not explicitly embraced by NATO and its backers. In short, we are left adrift between a legal obligation that often will not speak its name and a political one that obeys different imperatives. The ostensible irrelevance of R2P in the face of massive civilian casualties in Syria may not be fatal. Some could even argue that the doctrine is at work, even there. It calls, after all, for the application of a proportionality test before launching a military intervention. Applied to Syria, this test would recognize that the many arguments against military strikes might lead to the conclusion that the external use of force could serve to escalate rather than mitigate the conflict and therefore do more harm than good. Surprisingly, perhaps, the strong call for humanitarian access in Syria now is not advocated as an R2P imperative. Hard as humanitarian access is to achieve through a Security Council engagement, the chances of success of that effort would probably today not be enhanced by reliance on that doctrine. In short, for now, R2P, like justice, is on the defensive. Where does that leave us? Well, quite apart from the numerous rationales advanced in their support, international criminal justice and R2P share in common a common root in Article 1 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And let me remind you of that. All human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. They are endowed with reason and conscience and should act towards one another in a spirit of brotherhood. It is, I believe, that spirit of brotherhood that calls for the protection of victims of mass atrocities, ideally in a preventive way, but ultimately through accountability and redress. It might be wise to distance these doctrines, which are grounded in human rights, from international politics and further try to anchor their roots in law. For instance, in the case of R2P, an additional protocol to the Genocide Convention to include crimes against humanity could possibly be a game changer. Not that this provides any guarantee for their implementation, but it should alleviate their erosion from political processes that were never designed to implement fundamental human rights. The only body that purports to have this function, the United Nations Human Rights Council, is structurally just as unsuited as the Security Council to advance legal norms segregated from political considerations and has more than amply demonstrated its inability to overcome that flaw. It is a body of states where states' interests are traded 
to expect anything else of it would not be grounded in reality. The Security Council, the preeminent institutional form in cases of deadly conflict, <coughs> was mandated neither to champion fundamental human rights nor to be guided by the spirit of brotherhood evoked earlier. The veto of the five permanent members was explicitly given to them so that they could protect their national interest, not so that they could advance any kind of international public interest. Uh, recent commentary suggesting otherwise has great moral appeal, but again, it is not grounded in either political realities nor in institutional history. And the current pressure to reform the council by increasing its membership is unlikely to affect that. Now let me finally turn to the doctrine that I believe holds the most promise for conflict prevention, the rule of law. At this point, both greater doctrinal clarity and institutional capacity in the UN system would be required for the rule of law to deliver on its promise. Promotion of the rule of law has become the new mantra in international affairs, both in development project and in the prevention of conflict. But what is contemplated is often, in my view, an impoverished version of the rule of law used as a substitute for law enforcement, which in turn can easily be manipulated to strengthen the repressive capacity of the state. Properly understood, the rule of law carries, in my view, a much more ambitious agenda. To understand it, must, one must first understand the role of law in a free, democratic, and peaceful society. One could conceive of the law as merely an instrument for the orderly exercise of power. Even in that limited sense, it has some virtues. It's explicit, predictable, capable of compliance, and so on. One step above that, one may view the law as the neutral regulator of social conduct, everyone being subjected to the law, an equality of treatment in the application of the law, even, even if not necessarily in its content, does bring a measure of fairness into the regulation of human affairs and removes some arbitrariness. Understood this way, mostly in procedural terms, the rule of law is in fact nothing more than rule by law. As such, it requires that laws be properly enacted in non-arbitrary ways, that they be governed by a series of rules, some constitutional, some administrative, that validate the legal process. Laws must be public, non-retroactive, intelligible, and capable of compliance. They must adhere to the principle that no one is above the law, and they must be of general application. There are some disputes about some of these procedural requirements, but broadly speaking, they're all designed to ensure the primacy of law over force and over human arbitrariness. But both these views fail to embrace the full capacity of the rule of law beyond its formal and procedural advantages over unruliness and arbitrariness. Utilized to its full capacity, the rule of law regulates conduct in a way that maximizes individual liberty. This may, be, this may seem a paradox as laws are often perceived as restricting freedom, particularly in legal systems that rest on the assumption that everything is permitted unless it's prohibited by law. But if content is inserted into the rule of law, the paradox disappears. This understanding of the role of law in society was first expressed by the French cleric and philosopher Lacordaire, who said, and I quote, between the strong and the weak, between the rich and the poor, between the master and the slave, it is freedom that oppresses 
and the law that sets free. In other words, the role of law in a free and democratic society is to liberate, not to restrain. This requires inserting content into the rule of law. People should be governed by just laws, justly enacted and justly enforced. This requires content, is reflected in international human rights instruments, conventions that most states have ratified and should be implementing in any event. I don't want to suggest that we should dispense with law enforcement institutions or even with the overwhelming use of force in some circumstances in the enforcement of the law. But for the most part, demonstrably just laws have a better chance of generating voluntary compliance by a large segment of the population, freeing capacity to address deviance in proper ways. And at the other extreme, profoundly unjust laws that are barely enforceable uh, are barely enforceable, so great is the scale of non-compliance, or else have to be enforced by increasingly drastic measures, thereby in time aggravating the disrespect that they attract, enforcing escalation in repression. In a democracy, laws designed to maximize greater freedom require special treatment for the most vulnerable. It cannot be assumed that their interest will be properly reflected in majority rule governments. In a system that fully embraces the substantive rule of law, legal protection will typically then be extended to vulnerable minorities through the courts, particularly if the political system is not sufficiently inclusive to ensure their protection through the legislatures. The rule of law therefore engages all branches of governance, not just the executive, which is too often the center of power, uh, to whom legislatures may be subservient, or the legislatures who may express the tyranny of the majority. In other words, a state cannot claim to be operating under the rule of law merely because it has a strong and competent security and law enforcement sector if the laws themselves discriminate and oppress and if there's no redress from unjust laws or from laws unjustly applied. Despite the growing interest in the promotion of rule of law internationally, legal theory is not about to replace interstate politics and the sacred principle of state sovereignty will make difficult the promotion of this substantive vision of the rule of law. And yet, putting in place non-discriminatory laws and enforcing them is, in my view, among the most important long-term conflict prevention measure. Such laws would prevent the re-emergence of unresolved grievances often at the heart of conflict, or they would at least facilitate their peaceful resolution. This is again a tall agenda where law intersects with politics. The rule of law may serve to set people free, but in doing so, it must constrain power. And those with power are usually, not surprisingly, reluctant to see their power curtailed. So let me now conclude by returning to my opening remarks. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights asserts that the foundation of freedom, peace, and justice lies in the recognition of the inherent dignity and equal rights of all members of the human family, and those rights must be protected under the rule of law. The international human rights agenda has been under attack for some time, ironically often in the name of some human rights values such as cultural identity and religious freedom. When human rights violations become cause and effect of deadly conflict anywhere, they mortgage our conscience, if not our security. In the rush to provide relief, we should not lose sight of the integrity of the tools at our disposal. Today, I'm afraid that they're under siege and in a state of considerable disarray.
Thank you very much for your attention. Dear Justice Arbor, thank you very much for your insightful lecture, and thank you very much, Sir Adam Roberts, for moderating this wonderful event. But now, let me express some words of gratitude to Dr. Roland Berger on behalf of those who owe to him much more than just this lecture. I am fortunate enough to be part of the community of Berger scholars, and although I don't claim to know all of them, but I know enough of them to know that we share a lot in common. Each one of us is resolute to bring about some sort of change in his or her communities. And I know if there were nothing to be changed in our communities, it would have been still a splendid idea to come to Oxford. <laughs> <laughs> but it would be rather a self-centered exercise. And I just don't happen to know any Berger scholar who would have come to Oxford just for the sake of self-perfection. But we have to acknowledge that we are a very, very diverse lot. I think it's not an exaggeration to say that probably the only real common interest we have is the, is the interest in diverse interests. But I think it's better to describe us as a sort of inspirational community. And I think inspirations we all need badly at these times, especially those of us who come from struggling countries. And for that, I would certainly describe myself uh, as one of those people coming from Hungary, being a human rights lawyer. Unfortunately, the country I'm coming from has a diminishing level of human dignity to offer to its citizens and especially to its most vulnerable members. Other scholars come from other communities where the dream of a democratic and decent society is equally rapidly just fading away. And therefore, I think there is one identifiable uh, common driving force before, behind all Berger scholars. And I think it's on the one hand a sense of powerlessness in the face of social injustice. On the other hand, the big impetus to act against it. But to disarm this powerlessness, we need powerful tools. And I am convinced that Oxford, that Oxford has to offer to us this great education, wonderful community, is such a powerful tool. But to acquire this tool, we need generous people who put their trust in us almost blindly. And people like you, uh, who bridge the gap between our inspirations and our means, are simply invaluable. You are our silent bridge builder. And for that, I would like to express my gratitude on behalf of all Berger scholars of nowadays, and I hope many, many generations to come. Thank you very much. Wow.